So this morning, we are um, continuing on in our look at the book of Acts and thinking about what does it mean to be sent. And today, we want to talk about this idea of miracles, of signs and wonders. Because as you read through the book of Acts, as you read through the Gospels, you see numerous occasions of signs and wonders, of miracles. And perhaps you yourself have have been a part of something like that, where you and a group of people have prayed for the miraculous, where you have prayed for a sign and you have gotten it. The Judeo-Christian faith is a lot, there are numerous occasions in Old Testament and New Testament that speak to the validity of signs and wonders and miracles. It's perhaps a part, I mean, I know it's a part of my own story, is I have sat with people and gathered with people and prayed over people for a miracle to happen, and literally miracles have happened. But I suspect we also have stories of gathering around people and praying for the miraculous and it not happening. And so we live in this world of tension. We have prayed for God to show us a sign, to give us something, some sort of image, some sort of voice, some sort of whatever it might be to help us along the way. And sometimes that happens, and other times it might actually happen, but we're too busy to actually notice it. And other times God just simply seems to be silent. And so discussing signs and wonders I think is important to do, not because I have all the answers But because I think the biblical story points to saying there is this miraculous thing that happens. And that miraculous thing points us to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So like I said, we've been in the book of Acts. And as we've made our way through the book of Acts, we we began to see the gospel moving out of Jerusalem. And this morning we're going to read the latter part of Acts chapter 9, but something very significant happens in the beginning of Acts chapter 9. There is this man by the name of Saul. And you may remember this, Saul, he hated Christians. He hated the church. He would do anything he could do to destroy those who were following Jesus. And the beginning of Acts tells us that he's on his way to Damascus to go and arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem where they could be prosecuted. And on his way to Damascus, he hears a voice that is the voice of Jesus, and Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul falls to the ground blinded. He doesn't eat for three days. He's led away by his friends. And the book of Acts tells us that the voice of God, the Spirit of God, goes to a man by the name of Ananias. And the Spirit of God says to Ananias, I want you to go down to this house where Saul is residing, and I want you to pray over him and heal him and tell him that he is going to be my voice to reach the Gentiles. He's going to suffer, but he is going to be the voice that goes to the Gentiles. Now, if you have not been paying attention to this story right now, if you were Ananias, I want you to think about how would you feel? He looks at God and says, you are crazy. 
This is Saul who's been killing believers. This is Saul who's persecuting the church. And God says to Ananias, you must go. And so he goes. And I would say one of the greatest miracles ever happens. That this man who hated the church, who hated all things to do with Jesus, becomes perhaps the greatest evangelist ever. And so as we move into our story this morning, we read this in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, that sets up the text we're going to read in just a moment. It says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. There was a significant moment of peace. Why was there a sense of peace? Well, this guy named Saul had become a Christian. This one who was persecuting the church no longer cared to persecute the church. And the gospel begins to move out like we talked about from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so this morning, I kind of want to show you geographically what's going to happen again. I think it's always helpful to see that. So we've got a map up here on the screen I want to talk about a little bit. The, the red section of this map, that shows the journey of Philip, who we talked about last week, when he went north to Samaria out of Jerusalem, when the great persecution began to happen. Then he goes south to the road at Gaza, where he meets a man from Ethiopia. The man from Ethiopia takes the faith back down south to Ethiopia. The blue line that you see now is the, the trek that Peter takes. Peter and John are going to take. We're going to read about this. They go west out of Jerusalem to a community called Luda that we're going to read about. And then they go to a town called Joppa. All right? You all remember the town of Joppa? This guy who was not wanting to go to Nineveh. Remember that story of Jonah? He like says, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to Joppa. I'm getting the heck out of here. Same community. And then eventually, as you continue to read in Acts chapter 10, Peter also makes his way to Caesarea and goes to the same place where Philip is. So it's very interesting as you kind of look at all of these stories. What we're also going to see as we pick up our text is this is really the last time we'll hear from Peter. The only time we see him is in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem because the book of Acts now begins to focus on the works of the apostle Paul. So... We're going to read our text this morning, Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43, where we see two miraculous events occur. As Peter traveled throughout the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Luda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Luda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas, so Tabitha would be the Aramaic name. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Luda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Luda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes. And notice this line, showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. 
You see, the role of Dorcas, the role of Tabitha, was caring for the widows. And Luke does a very interesting thing here. He, he helps us to see that because they had nothing. Remember, the widows were poor, destitute. And what had Tabitha done? She had knitted the clothing they were literally wearing. And when Peter shows up, they say, look, look, Tabitha made this. And they're grieving and mourning her loss. Verse 40, Peter sent them all out of the room, and then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented to her, presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Okay, if you're listening to these two miracles that Peter just performed, they perhaps sound a little familiar. They were very similar to, perform, to miracles that Jesus had performed. In the gospel, Jesus goes to this community called Capernaum. There is a paralytic who is unable to get to Jesus. Y'all remember this story? And so his friends go up to the roof, dig a hole in the roof, lower their friend down in the presence of Jesus. Jesus says, hey, your sins are forgiven, which really made the religious rulers upset. And then he said, take up your mat and go. Then there is a daughter of Jairus, a religious ruler. Jesus gets word that his daughter has died, and so he goes to the house of Jairus, and he sends everybody out of the house, except for Peter and James and John and her parents, and he resuscitates her. She lives. Peter does the same thing in our story. He sends everybody away and then prays for healing. It's interesting that in both, both verse 34 and verse 40, Peter used the exact same Greek word to Tabitha and to the paralytic when he says, get up, literally, rise. And what's fascinating is that Greek word, when you look at the verbal form of it, is the word that is used for when, how the gospels speak about God raising Jesus from the dead. It's the same image. Get up. Live life. You've been restored. And so Tabitha is raised, and the paralytic is able to walk. And we read in both stories, people come to faith. Seventeen times in the book of Acts, we read about people coming to faith because of miracles. We know that miracles do not always make us keep the faith, but they certainly help point us to the Savior. Now, having said that, there will always be doubters. And we think because we live in this postmodern scientific world that the doubters of the miraculous, and some of us perhaps in this room are doubters, the doubters of the miraculous is something that's only been happening since the Enlightenment or something along those lines. Folks, there have always been doubters. John chapter 12, Jesus is doing this incredible work. He's walking around, he's healing people, he's teaching. All these things are happening. And the religious rulers still scoff at him and the miraculous work that he does. So much so we read in John chapter 12, verse 37, even after Jesus performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. What more must Jesus do? Now, that's one group of people. 
we might expect them to not believe and to doubt. But surely the disciples of Jesus are different, right? I mean, they hung out with Jesus for those three years. They heard Jesus say, hey, three days later after I die, I'm going to be raised from the dead. They begin to hear words that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, right before Jesus gives the Great Commission, they go out to the mountainside to hang out with Jesus. And this is what we read in Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 and 17. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So they're following the directions, right? When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Holy smoke. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the one who said, I will be raised from the dead. This is the one who had said to Thomas, touch my hand, see the holes, do this, whatever you need to do. I have been raised from the dead. The 11 disciples who knew him better than anybody else go out to the mountaintop. He's standing there in his fully resurrected body. Whatever that looks like, I don't really know, but I know it's awesome and I know it's amazing. And I can't wait for one day for all of us to experience that where there's no more suffering, no more loss, no more any of that sort of stuff. This is what Jesus looks like. And some still doubted. There will always be those amongst us who doubt that the miraculous can happen or who have lots of arguments about why it hasn't happened or why it didn't happen. And I don't have time today to go into all this sort of stuff. The one thing I want to propose today is this. Well, I probably want to propose more than one thing because you all know I'm nowhere near being done right now. So... um, Jesus is the ultimate sign. Jesus is the ultimate miracle. Jesus is the ultimate wonder of what God has done for us. In John chapter 6, it starts with the feeding of the 5,000, which is a rather remarkable miracle. A couple loaves, a couple fish, whatever version of the story you're reading, Jesus blesses it. And it feeds an incredible amount of people. I'll never forget it. This is actually, this is just a story I just thought of. Years, this is actually when we were back in Lubbock, Texas. We did a memorial service for a family. And, you know, we, of course, had our, our we had a, the congregational care team. And, and we did the memorial service. And we brought them back to the church to feed them. They told us there would be 50 people there. There were 150 people there. We fed every one of them. I don't know if it was loaves and fishes. I don't know if it was miraculous. I don't know what the heck happened. But I was like, God, you're pretty amazing. Like, we planned for 50, and we fed 150. And I mean, we fed them, okay? It wasn't like people were being polite and not taking any food. But there's always just these strange sorts of things that are happening. So anyway, so Jesus feeds the 5,000. He cares for them. And then, they're, then, then everyone's super stoked about that, right? Because they're like, hey, we've got the king who will always feed us. We'll never go home. Man, we got a hold of Jesus because we all want to get a hold of Jesus and put him in our own little box, right? So what does Jesus do? He just disappears, right? Because he's good at doing that when you try and control Jesus. Next thing we know in John chapter 6, he's walking. The disciples are going across the sea. And here comes Jesus, right, walking on the water. They let him into the boat. They get to the other side of the sea. The crowd has followed him. And then there's this interesting conversation. This is verse 25 of John chapter 6. When they found him on the other side, listen listen to what's happening in this story. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, 
Rabbi, when did you get here? I mean, because Jesus can walk on water, he can do a lot of things that the rest of us cannot do. Jesus answered very truly, I tell you, these are the amen statements of Jesus. When you read very truly, he's saying amen. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because the loaves, because you ate your loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they ask this question, what must we do to do the works God requires? Because remember, we so easily move into a works-based salvation. If I just do the right things, God will love me. If I just do the right things, God will care for me. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What is your job? Jesus says, your job is to have faith and believe. Verse 30, so they asked him, here it comes, what sign? Isn't this this hilarious? Like, they just don't get it. He just fed 5,000 of them, right? Hey, Lord, what sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus said, declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, that verse might sound familiar because guess when I used it the last time? A month ago on communion. I, I, I know that's a, that's a hard question because you're like, Paul, I don't remember what you just said five minutes ago. I'm going to have a hard time believing, remembering that. Last, last month, I was like, when did I? I said, I just used this verse. I know I just used this verse, and I used it last Sunday, or last, last communion Sunday in September. But here's the deal. Jesus says, I'm the true sign. I am, that, that, that great, the Greek words, ego, me. He has these seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, and this is one of them. He says, I am the bread of life that came down to give you life. You know about Moses. You know about the bread he gave you. You know about the bread that he fed you with. But that is nothing compared to with what I bring to, and give to you. I will give you such that you'll never hunger nor never thirst again. And thus, Jesus is the ultimate sign. All things in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, they're all pointing to Jesus. So then what what then do miracles do? What are the purposes? And, and, and I don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time because there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of purposes on miracles. But, but we see in miracles that, that they are a sign, they, they affirm whoever the communicator is. That when miracles are worked, they're affirming the, or confirming the messenger who brings them. Old Testament, New Testament. Miracles also point us that when we see something like that, 
we recognize that it comes from beyond us. And worship happens. We see this with Jesus time and time again. That people fall at his feet. That people ask, who is this that even the winds and waves obey him? So miracles lead us to worship. They bring about faith. Some of you may have a faith story. Some of the part of your own story might be because of a sign or a wonder or a miracle that you witnessed. Perhaps something in your life, perhaps something in the life of another. But the one thing I want to just spend a little bit of time on is this. Is that miracles also point to the restoration of God's creation. To what's going to happen one day when Christ returns and makes all things right. Tim Keller does a great job of describing this, so I'm just going to read it because he says it way better than I could ever articulate it. He says this, We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. Now, here's, here's, where I, here's what I love that he writes. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. That's not God's plan. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. You see, what Keller argues is we're not suspending nature. The work of Jesus is restoring nature. It's getting us back to that place we read about in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. It's back to Eden. It's back to where there's no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sighing. It's back to this restored world. That's what Jesus is about as he heals the sick, as he deals with hunger. And the biggest miracle in all of this, you're included. The biggest miracle of everything that we're reading about, of everything that we're seeing, of everything that we're reading about in the book of Acts, is you're included. This sign, this wonder, these words of Jesus, these apostles carrying out the faith, they're taking out this message that no matter how broken you feel, no matter how sorrowful you feel, no matter how depressed you feel, no matter how lost you feel, no matter how long you've been looking for signs and wonders, no longer how, how long you've been looking for peace, no longer how long you've been looking for the right answer, Jesus says, I've come for you. And all you have to do is believe. The work has been finished by Jesus going to the cross. Life is given to you and to me. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And so, just like Tabitha and just like the paralytic, Jesus says to you, get up. So I want to. So this is what sometimes happens in biblical translations. 
Uh, I tend to use the NIV, but sometimes when you look at the actual context of what's written in the Greek or read about what's actually written in the Greek, you realize that the language is a little bit different. Because in the NIV that we just read, when the paralytic was healed, uh, Peter says to him, get up and what? Take your mat. But guess what the Greek language actually says? Acts chapter 9, verse 34. And Peter said to him, this is from the English Standard Version, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise up and make your bed. Use this one on your kids and grandkids anytime you want to, right? Make sure you get the right translation because NIV is going to tell you to get up and take your mat. He says to Aeneas, rise up and make your bed, and immediately he rose. Why does he tell him to make his bed? Because he's been laying in his bed because he has been unable to get out of his bed because that is his home. And Jesus says to him, you need to get out of your bed and you need to get to work and you need to make your bed because you don't need it now until tonight when you are tired and exhausted from all the walking around that you are going to do. So get up and make your bed. To Tabitha, Peter says, get up and keep sowing, keep caring for the widows, keep caring for the least of these, because this is the work that God has done. This is the miracle that happens that is possible for you, because Jesus looks at you and says, get up. And you may not be able to physically get up and move as fast as you used to move, but the image is the same, because he's saying you don't have to lie there any longer. You don't have to wallow in your sorrow and your pity and your sadness and your brokenness and your despair because Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I've come so that you'll never hunger again. I've come so that you will never thirst again. And all you have to do is believe and get up. I'm not going to ask how many of you made your bed this morning before you showed up for church. But he says, get up and go and do what God has called you to do. And it is here at this table this morning that we are strengthened to do that, that we are reminded that Jesus says, no longer, no matter, you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst again. The work that I want to do in your life will sustain you till the very end because Jesus restores And Jesus heals. Pray with me, please. God, we gather at this table where another miracle took place. And Lord, in these miracles, we see signposts that you are putting up in and around us that point to the beauty and wonder and work of your son. And sometimes we're doubtful and sometimes we're skeptical and sometimes we're weary. But God, those words spoken to Aeneas, those words spoken to Tabitha, are to get up, to be raised. Because God, that's what you did for us in and through Jesus Christ, who gave his life in order that he might be raised to new life, in order that we might have life and have life abundant. And so we gather around this table, Lord, to remember that great truth. Praying in Jesus' name, amen.